0: Hey, Crime Sound listeners, welcome back to the show. Ashley here, and with me always is my partner in crime, Ricky. Hey, guys. Hey, so we have just a quick scoop of what's going on in our lives. If uh, you remember the bunny story, we have more backyard gossip to share.
1: (laughs) Backyard shenanigans.
0: So we have three dogs, Piper, Pojo, and Pudge.
1: Two fluffy dogs and a small one.
0: Yeah, and... They're outside going to the bathroom. It was about seven or eight at night. And well, you were upstairs and I was downstairs.
1: Yeah, I think you were actually, uh, I don't know, you're working on the podcast or something. I was, I was yeah. just like laying on the couch, like half asleep. And our fluffiest dog, Pojo, just started barking, which she's always barking, right?
0: Like, always barking. Always
1: barking. <laughs> Constantly. And, but this was a weird bark. You know, it was something a little weird. I ran to the door and I see all the dogs just like drooling and rolling in the grass and like, you know, just frantically like rubbing their face in the grass. And I'm like, <laughs> what the hell just happened?
0: Right. You call me upstairs. I'm so, like, Ashley, something's wrong. So I go upstairs and I'm like, what? Is, like Ricky never freaks out, really. So like I go upstairs and I'm like, "What? what is it? I open up the door. And this strong smell comes through the door.
1: I didn't really recognize the smell, though, honestly.
0: It was so strong. Like like normally, my eyes were burning.
1: Normally, you smell a skunk from, like, miles away, and it smells like a skunk. This just, like, punched you in the nose. This like, was horrible. Oh, it was pungent.
0: And it was so direct. So Piper is our Sheltie. Her eyes the most are squinting. One. Yes. Uh, her eyes are squinting. Like, she just, like got hit, like, right in the face. Like, I already knew.
1: Yeah, it was definitely in her eye. Like, it looked like the majority of it hit her eye and, like, in her mouth, because she was just, like, salivating, like, crazy, dripping. Her eye was completely, like, shut, and she was just looking at me like, help me.
0: Yeah, so I grabbed the dog. You're Googling. What should we do? The first thing that comes up...
1: It's like, your dog's dead. No, not really. (laughs) Basically, though, it's like, if your dog gets hit in the eyes, like, immediately call, like, the emergency veterinary.
0: And it's Sunday at like eight o'clock. So I'm like, oh, hold on. Like, if something gets in my eyes, I'm going to flush it out. So we take her downstairs, flush out her eyes with the water. It seemed to really help. She like actually liked it.
1: Yeah, which she never lets you like even give her a bath. So it's like she, something was definitely wrong.
0: Yeah. So we rinsed her out. I think we washed her like five or six times. Oh, for sure. Just we tried to like like, get the oils off her. We
1: tried every like concoction on the internet. It was like <laughs> Dawn dish soap, baking soda, everything you could try. <laughs>
0: Everything. We didn't try the tomato juice because I saw that that's actually a Yeah, match. they said
1: it's not real. I yeah. don't know.
0: I don't know. But um, all the other dogs are good. The two other dogs are fine. Um, Piper, she is totally fine. She oh, actually she was fine. She smells
1: horrible, though. She's it's still She still bad.
0: smells like really bad.
1: <laughs> I feel bad. She's like the black sheep of the family right now. Yeah. I don't know. Pudge doesn't really smell. Potra doesn't really smell. I think Pudge like dove behind Piper, you know, <laughs> took cover but I don't know whatever our lives are crazy our whole house smells like skunk and
0: you can't make this stuff up no you can't
1: we just sold our house too so it's like we're gonna hand over the keys to like the skunk skunk palace yeah
0: (laughs) in the backyard
1: welcome to the skunk palace it's all yours (laughs) everything the light touches good luck yeah But anyways, we have some cool stuff going on. We have some new patrons. We have Erica, Emily, Pamela, and Sherry. Thank you guys so much.
0: Thank you guys so much for your support. We really appreciate it. So much. But let's jump into our case this week that was sent to us from a listener named Frances who wanted to share a case that happened in her hometown of Wichita, Kansas. When it comes to true crime, one of the biggest names that people think of is BTK, a serial killer whose reign of terror over Wichita, Kansas lasted more than 15 years. But while BTK might be the most famous serial killer, for the people of Wichita, Reginald and Jonathan Carr's week-long crime and killing spree caused citizens to fear for their lives, both while out inside of their homes. In the 20 years since the Carr brothers committed what is now dubbed the Wichita Horror or Wichita Massacre, they have filed multiple appeals keeping their crimes in headlines in town and preventing closure for the families who lost so much. Reginald Carr was born in 1978, and his brother Jonathan was born only two years later in 1980 to Janice Harding in Dodge City, Kansas. From the beginning, nothing in their life was easy and their home was far from safe and loving. Their mother Janice openly described herself as not a huggy, kissy person. The family didn't celebrate any holidays not even birthdays. And when their youngest sister, Regina, died of leukemia at only three years old, their home grew even darker and colder. Unable to deal with such grief, the cars' home was often a site of violence. Their father regularly became physically abusive towards their mother when they argued, and she sometimes fought back once even with a baseball bat. When the kids were in trouble, she would punish them with electrical cords. After Janice and their father divorced when they were still young, Reginald and Jonathan never saw them again. But Janice's next relationship wasn't peaceful either, and the boy's stepfather once threatened her with a gun. When not living with their mother, the boys lived with their grandmother, but that was a difficult environment as well. Janice's mother was also prone to outbursts and frequently screamed at the kids. Reginald and Jonathan also had an older sister who would later testify at their trial that she had been sexually abused and that the boys were molested by her mother's boyfriend. Reginald and Jonathan both had long histories of trouble, starting with trouble in school and then later trouble with the law. Reginald's trouble with drugs and alcohol began early when he had his first drink at age six. He was constantly in detention and attended eight different schools before he was in ninth grade. During his freshman year in Dodge City, he received 21 detentions before he could face consequences for beating up another student. Reginald dropped out of school. Within a few years, by 18, he was in prison for various crimes. Like his brother, Jonathan had an equally tough time growing up and often felt helpless and withdrawn. Though Reginald often tried to take the blame for any of Jonathan's bad behavior, Jonathan still found himself often in trouble. With the difficult home life and facing trouble at school, at 16 years old, he attempted suicide by drinking antifreeze. Though he survived, he still struggled to get out of his depression and get by. Due to a childhood marked with what psychologists called the five H's hopeless, helpless, homeless, hungry, and hugless, the Carr brothers were hardened, cold towards the world, and angry from a young age. In the winter of 2000, Reginald had recently been released from prison and the brothers moved from Dodge City to Wichita, Kansas. Reginald was 22 and Jonathan was 20. Located in south-central Kansas, Wichita is the largest city in the state with a population of about 400,000. Wichita is known as the air capital of the world for its aircraft production. It's where you can find the first Pizza Huts and White Castle. And you can see the Keeper of the Plains statue, a beautiful sculpture created by Black Bear Boson, an indigenous artist in the 1970s. A fun fact from our listener who sent this case over to us where the sculpture sits is where the little and big Arkansas River meet. And she told me that the river is actually pronounced as Arkansas when it's in Kansas, but when it's not in the area, it goes back to the Arkansas River. It's a town full of innovation, culture, and history. And when the cars moved there in the year of 2000, they changed the town of Wichita forever.
1: December 8, 2000, became the first night of the Wichita Massacre. A 23-year-old baseball player at Wichita State University named Andrew Schreiber was on his way home when he stopped at a gas station to pick up some chewing tobacco, just like normal. As he was heading back to his car, Reginald Carr and another man, who is now assumed to be Jonathan, rushed at Andrew and pointed a gun at his head. They forced him back into his car while at gunpoint and made him drive around to multiple ATMs, where they ordered him to withdraw as much cash as he could at each of them. Andrew Schreiber hoped that if he did what they told him, they would let him live, and luckily he was right. The two men shot out Andrew's tires before fleeing in another vehicle. They had entirely emptied his bank account, but Andrew had lived. Andrew immediately reported the attack to police, but he didn't have much to go on. He had given them a description of the perpetrators, but police didn't feel there was much they could do with those descriptions and made little moves to find out who robbed Andrew Schreiber. All was quiet for three days. On December 11th, a 55-year-old woman, Linda Ann Wallenta, was sitting in her car in her driveway. She was a cellist for the Wichita Symphony Orchestra and worked as a librarian where she was responsible for ordering and keeping track of the music at the local library. She was well-liked in the area, having lived there for many years. Though Anne loved her job at the library, her real passion was in classical music. That night, she had just arrived back at her home that she shared with her husband and two daughters after finishing up practicing with the orchestra. Before she could get fully out of her car, a man approached asking for help. It was one of the Car brothers. Anne rolled down her window to speak with him, but when she did... The man pointed a gun at her head. She attempted to flee by putting the car in reverse, but it was too late. They were too close to her already. The brothers shot her three times in the car as she attempted to get away. Gravely injured but still conscious, she blared the horn which alerted neighbors, and one of them called 911. The police found her still alive, as she relayed what had happened to the police. Given the similarities in the crimes, and that Anne had given a description of her attackers that matched Andrew's, it was clear to police that these were the same criminals. Though Anne initially survived the gunshot wounds, and despite the best attempts to help her at the hospital, Anne succumbed to her injuries, becoming the Carr brothers' first murder victim. After Anne's attack, police were growing concerned about the two criminals running loose in Wichita. They knew that whoever was doing this had already increased their violence, from Andrew's attack to Anne's, and police knew that if they didn't find them soon, this crime spree would get worse. No one could have predicted how it would escalate.
0: All right, guys, hear me out. I feel like for the most part, everyone listening to this podcast is of adult age. I mean, what do you think, Ricky?
1: I mean, we are a true crime podcast, right?
0: Yeah. And as we've talked about on the show before, our relationship should add value to our lives. What do you think? I think. Thoughtfully designed toys for the bedroom can deepen your connection with your partner and leave everybody feeling satisfied. Dame Products is a woman-owned company making the next generation of toys for intimacy. Founded by a sex educator and engineering whiz, Dame develops its products with the help of real humans and couples like you. Their mission is to make adding toys to the bedroom less intimidating and more accessible to create better, intimate experiences for all. Dame's easy-to-use products are made with medical-grade silicone, smart design principles, and lots of love, earning glowing press from the New York Times, Wired w magazine and many more whether you're looking to enhance intimacy or try something new with your partner or give her a gift to encourage self-exploration dame has a toy that is sure to please if you're unsure of what you're looking for you can take their product quiz for product suggestions tailored to you and your partner and ricky do you want to know what the best part is i do Dame offers three-year warranties and hassle-free returns within 60 days. So satisfaction is literally guaranteed.
1: So you can't go wrong.
0: Can't go wrong. Go to dameproducts.com slash crime salad today for 15% off site-wide. Again, go to dameproducts.com slash crime salad today for 15% off site-wide.
1: Another three days passed after the shooting of Ann Wallenta. And on the night of December 14th, this time, Reginald and Jonathan Carr had moved past just attacking a single person in a car, and began their most horrific crime yet. Jason Befford, Brad Haka, and Aaron Sander were roommates at 12727 Birchwood in Wichita. That night, Jason's longtime girlfriend, known here into the media as HG, and another woman, Heather Mahler, who was a friend and previous girlfriend of Aaron's, were also hanging out at the house. Jason and Heather were teachers, and Brad and Aaron both had worked at Koch Financial Services. Aaron had recently decided to become a Roman Catholic priest, and Heather planned to become a nun. They were all in their 20s, between 25 and 29 years old. The five friends had dinner and watched TV, having a normal, fun night together. As it grew later that evening, everyone decided to call it a night and went up to their separate rooms. HG and Jason were cuddled up in bed when they saw the porch light come on and heard Aaron talking to someone. Not thinking too much of it, HG turned to look at the clock to see it was around 11pm, when suddenly Jason's bedroom door burst open. Through the darkness, HG saw a tall black man pointing a gun in their direction. Walking towards them and ripping the blanket off of the bed, a second man holding a gun came into the room, dragging Aaron with him and asked angrily if anyone else was in the house. One of the brothers stood guard with the three in Jason's bedroom, while the other went in search of Brad and Heather. He brought them into Jason's room as well, and ordered them all to get undressed. HG's dog, Nikki was also at the house barking at the intruders and they threatened to shoot her until she was under control the evening only became more horrific from there the men yelled at the five naked and fearful friends to give them their money and their debit cards the group was then split up and some pairs were taken to the wet bar outside of jason's room and forced to have sex with each other while the brothers watched and yelled their orders they took turns forcing the men to have sex with their female friends and then beating the men When the intruders were no longer interested in the men, they locked them into the closet in Jason's bedroom. HG was taken out into the hall, and this time to be raped by one of the brothers. He put his gun down while he unzipped his pants, but HG did not want to risk a failed attempt to grab the weapon. After the rape, one by one, one of the brothers took each of the friends to an ATM to take out money from their accounts. The men were allowed to get dressed for their trek, but the women each only had a sweater on during the cold and snowy December night. After the run to the ATM, the brothers pillaged through the house, looking for more valuables to take. In their search, they found a diamond ring hidden in a cabinet, among other things. Jason Bedford had been planning to ask HG to marry him, but he hadn't had the chance. Again, Reginald and Jonathan each raped the women. When the rapists were done, around 2 a.m., they ordered everyone to get in the trunk of Aaron's Honda Accord. Realizing that all five wouldn't fit, the men were told to stay in the trunk, while Heather and H.G. got in the back seat. The Car brothers spoke for a few minutes and ordered H.G. out of the Accord and into Jason's truck. The brothers each got in one of the cars and drove out of the house. The two cars finally pulled up to a snowy soccer field. Everyone was ordered out of the cars and to kneel in the cold snow. With the five of them lined up, they were shot execution style. HG felt the bullet hit her head, but she wasn't knocked unconscious. By some miracle, she avoided death only because the bullet had been slightly deflected by a metal hair clip. One of the brothers kicked her back and she fell to the ground next to the dead. HG pretended to be dead, hoping her tormentors would leave quickly. She laid still on the ground as she heard the truck start up. The drivers then sped and ran over the five bleeding bodies. Despite the second horrific injury, HG did not die or lose consciousness. She heard the truck driving off and slowly turned her head to make sure that it was true. They were finally gone. HG then turned to her friends, calling their names, hoping for another survivor. Her boyfriend was next to her with blood coming from his head. HG took off her sweater, the only remaining bit of clothing she had on, and tied it around his head to try to stop the bleeding. But there was nothing she could do. She looked around and a little bit away. She saw Christmas lights decorating a home. She ran towards the house, hoping for safety and to call 911. As she made it to the road, she saw headlights. Fearing it was the invaders, she dove into the snow and waited for the car to pass. Naked, badly injured, and freezing, HG ran as fast as she could to the home. She had run a full mile before she reached it. After banging on the door and ringing the doorbell repeatedly, the owners of the house opened the door to find HG. Badly injured, frantic, naked, and shivering on the porch. The couple took HG into their home and called 911. Despite fearing for her life, HG was able to provide as much information as she could about her attackers and what they had done to them. When police finally arrived at the soccer field, they confirmed HG's worst fears. Jason and her friends were dead. While police and EMTs worked at the soccer field, investigators also went back to the house on Birchwood Drive, where everything had started. It appeared that while HG was calling 911, The Carr brothers had gone back to the house to steal more. They had totally ransacked the house and in the process stabbed HG's beloved dog, Nikki, to death. The next morning, news of the four deaths and miraculous survival of HG was all over the TV. A man named Christian Taylor saw the news report and heard the description of Jason Beffert's truck. Christian had seen the truck at his apartment and thought it could be the one police were looking for. When police came to the apartment complex, they also heard from another resident that he had also seen the truck, and had helped a man carry a large TV into an apartment. Police immediately went to the apartment. Reginald Carr opened the door, and seeing police, briefly made an attempt at jumping over the railing from the second floor to the parking lot. But he was surrounded. Reginald was arrested that day, and his face was broadcasted on the news, Andrew Schreiber had saw the news and called police to inform them that they had found the man who robbed him nearly a week prior. Police found Jonathan through a woman named Tony Green. Tony's daughter, Tronda, had been seeing Jonathan for about a week. When Tony got home from work, she found Jonathan sleeping on her couch. She heard on the news a description of a second man police were looking for in the quadruple homicide. She heard the suspect was driving a white Plymouth and had stolen a diamond engagement ring. Suspicious, she checked Jonathan's jacket pocket and found the engagement ring. And outside of her house, she saw the Plymouth. Quietly realizing she had found the man the police were looking for, she whispered to her daughter to get her and her niece out of the house. They went to the neighbors across the street and called 911. In the meantime, Jonathan woke up. Seeing the house was empty and panicking, he ran. He didn't get far though. Police arrived quickly and found him hiding two blocks away. With $1,000 cash on him, Jonathan Carr was arrested. Ann Wallenta, still alive, picked Reginald out of a photo lineup. She wasn't able to identify Jonathan as the other man. She died from her injuries only a little while after. Authorities were given a search warrant for DNA testing, so samples were taken of the two men. While in custody, Jonathan spoke to Kelly Otis, a detective at the precinct. Jonathan asked about another case of quadruple homicide. Jonathan asked Kelly what had happened to the murderers in that crime. She replied that they were convicted of capital murder and that they can be given the death penalty. Jonathan asked if you feel anything from lethal injection. Kelly replied, we've never been able to ask anyone.
0: After the arrest and as more information about the crimes was released to the public, there was an outrage and an attempt to find a motive. Some suggested that what made this crime so horrible was the apparent randomness of it. It seemed that there was no discernible connection between the killers and the victims. Anyone could have been targeted and these victims may have simply been chosen at random. Others believe that there may have been a racial motivation in these crimes as the perpetrators were black and all of the victims were white. Ultimately, the prosecution believed there was no racial motivation for these horrendous crimes. District Attorney Nola Falston firmly said that the fact that the defendants and the victims happen to be of different races have no bearing. This case was also used by politicians to support their stances for tougher criminal penalties. Tony Powell, a state representative, accused the Attorney General David Atkins as having a role in the crimes as well. Atkins had supported a bill that reduced the amount of time a criminal had to be on parole. Powell claimed that had Atkins been tougher on crime, then Reginald would have been watched more carefully. As it turns out, Reginald's parole team was shortened, but not just because of the law. A paperwork error had actually led him to being released six months early. For their orchestration of the Wichita Horror, Reginald and Jonathan were charged with a combined 113 crimes. Included were five counts of capital murder, multiple counts of rape and robbery, and animal cruelty for the death of H.G.'s dog. In finding a jury, three people had been excused due to connections to the victims, and one was excused because he was opposed to the death penalty. Of the jury, 10 were white and two were black. In what was not an easy trial for anyone to listen to, HG was called to the stand early on the trial to recount what happened to her. She described the rapes, the robberies, and the executions on the soccer field. Andrew Schreiber also testified about his own kidnapping and robbery. Other expert testimony was given about Ann Walnette's attack, the death of the dog, and the execution-style gunshots. The bullets that were used to shoot out Andrew Schreiber's tires, the bullets that killed Ann Walnette, and the bullets found at the home all matched. The gun that matched the bullets was found off a highway a few blocks from the soccer field where the killings took place. Though it wasn't possible to tie a gun to the Carr brothers, DNA evidence clearly linked them to the crime. Jonathan's semen was found at the home on Birchwood Drive and on HG's rape kit, and Heather's blood was found on Reginald's clothes. The surviving witnesses had some difficulty identifying their attackers, and this was brought up during cross-examination. Both HG and Andy ultimately were able to identify Reginald Carr, but neither could identify Jonathan. But other people who had known the Carr brothers more personally were able to testify against them. Tronda Adams, the woman who had seen Jonathan briefly around the time of the crimes, testified that she saw Jonathan with a gun the night of Anne Wilnetta's attack. He gave the gun to Tronda to hold on to until December 14th, the night of the murders. Reginald's girlfriend, Stephanie Donley also testified that she helped the men bring the stolen items into her apartment and they had borrowed her car on December 14th. Donley, who was a nurse, also testified that Reginald had general warts and HG later was diagnosed with the same thing. In addition to the expert testimony and the report of the victims, prosecutors found a large amount of stolen items in Reginald's apartment. Two TVs, a CD player, a tool set, shoes, jackets, and phones. Some of the family members of the victims identified these items as belonging to the victims. Jonathan's case was pretty limited. They said that he had purchased a train ticket and was planning to leave the state the day of the murders. The ticket, however, had never been used, reportedly because Jonathan got lost and he was trying to leave Wichita. Reginald's case was even thinner as his team was unable to get any evidence admitted. Reginald wanted to make the claim that Jonathan had committed these crimes and that he had only moved the stuff in his girlfriend's house to help protect his brother and that Jonathan had committed the crimes with another partner. But this was all deemed hearsay and was not truly evidence. Ultimately, the brothers tried to pin the crimes on each other. It was no surprise that the defense didn't work. On November 4th, 2002, Reginald and Jonathan were convicted of most of their charges, including capital murder, rape, robbery, kidnapping and animal cruelty. A little over a week later, the day after Reginald Carr's 25th birthday, the jury agreed on the punishment. They would receive the death penalty. In the years after the sentencing, there have been reoccurrent legal issues raised. First, in March of 2004, the families of the homicide victims filed a lawsuit that the state was negligent in protecting the victims. Reginald was out of jail early due to a paperwork error. Had the error not been made, he wouldn't have been able to go on his crime spree that December. The state settled with the family and they received a combined $1.7 million. Over the next decade, the fate of Reginald and Jonathan Carr remained in flux because of the challenges to the death penalty. In 2004, the Kansas Supreme Court overturned the death penalty law in the state, but this was appealed and the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the legality of the death penalty. A decade later, there were more appeals from the CARs. The Kansas Supreme Court agreed that it was a violation of the brothers' Eighth Amendment rights to an individualized capital sentencing determination as they were sentenced together. There were concerns that the jury could have been influenced to sentence one brother based on the other brother's perceived dangerousness and other concerns that the jury may not have been instructed properly. Instead of receiving the death penalty, it seemed the Carr brothers would spend the rest of their lives in prison. In 2014, Andy Schreiber, one of the two surviving victims of the Carr brothers' crime spree, wrote in a Wichita Eagle newspaper against the Supreme Court's ruling, saying that he believes they should get the death penalty and that it would be wrong for the victims to have to relive the trials, especially twice, because there would have to be separate trials for the brothers now. The decision, however, was again overturned by the United States Supreme Court, who upheld the validity of the death penalty in this case. At this time, the state of Kansas has not executed a prisoner since 1965. There are currently nine prisoners awaiting death. Now in their forties, the Carr brothers will remain in prison on death row. With continuing appeals, the victims and the families of those murdered continue to have to relive these horrendous crimes. With the possibility of facing a new sentencing trial, While Reginald and Jonathan Carr will never be free men again, many still wonder what could have driven them to harm and kill so many people. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode. We will see you next week.
1: Crime Salad is a Weird Salad production. Are you kidding me? That was perfect.